Hi, everyone, and uh, welcome to Emory SCDP's uh, ECHO presentation uh, for this quarter. The uh, EMS hierarchy of controls is the uh, topic for today. We appreciate uh, having so many of you register and so many of you uh, participate in the program. So I just want everyone to know that we're uh, recording this session, uh, recorded for quality improvement purposes, but also so that we can uh, post it um, on the SCDP website and uh, you can access it uh, later, but be aware that, uh, that this is being recorded. Uh, many of you probably know what the ECHO programs are. ECHO is an acronym. It, it stands for Extension for Community Healthcare Outcomes. It's actually, it's a great program of telementoring. And so uh, when there are issues that need to be explored and can best be explored through review of a case and through engagement of subject matter experts um, to uh, describe and disseminate best practices in, in the care of uh, uh, patient management or situation management, um, that's where ECHO really is strong. Um, this program meets every other Thursday, uh, discusses uh, issues related to biopreparedness. The sessions are recorded, as we talked about already, um, and they're published as a podcast, and you can subscribe to those uh, so that you never miss an episode. Uh, you can see on your screen there are ways to uh, remedy uh, technical issues. Um, so you can send a uh, message to uh, IT Echo in the Zoom chat. And if you'd like to ask a question, there's a Q&A uh, icon there. And so put your questions in the Q&A section and chat about any IT issues that you may have. Uh, this uh, program is approved for uh, continuing medical education and um, continuing education units for physicians, for nurses, and uh, for the EMS community. And the uh, presenters, uh, who we'll introduce shortly, um, together with the planning committee, are disclosing that uh, we have no financial conflicts of interest uh, with this program or any of the material that we're presenting. So we will have a welcome and introductions. Uh, we will uh, move quickly to a Department of Health and Human Services Region 4 situation report as it relates to biothreats. We will ask uh, you to answer a couple poll questions. Then we'll move into the didactic and the case presentation um, and uh, leave time for questions um, and answers near the end of the hour. Uh, we'll ask uh, you to uh, answer the polling questions one more time before you leave. So uh, the first uh, person I want to introduce is uh, Dr. Lakshmi Kumar. Um, she is on faculty in the uh, Emory University School of Medicine as an associate professor. Uh, she's also the uh, medical director for Grady EMS, which is the 911 ambulance responder uh, in the city of Atlanta and many other communities in Georgia. Uh, she's been actively involved in the movement of patients uh, with uh, confirmed to have high consequence infectious diseases infections uh, through her work with the Grady EMS Biosafety Transport Team and currently is on the EMS work group of NETAC, which is the National Emerging Special Pathogens Training and Education Center. Uh, the didactics today will be presented by my uh, friend and colleague, Dr. Mike Carr, an assistant professor in the Department of Emergency Medicine 
at the University School of Medicine, uh, works clinically at the Emory University Hospital, as well as the Atlanta VA, is the medical director for the Cab County Fire Rescue and associate medical director for Air Life Georgia. He's also the principal uh, investigator for Emory Rural Tele-EMS Network, or ERTEMS, which is HRSA funded, and he leads Tele-EMS for the Southern Regional Disaster Response System. Uh, he also works closely with the NETEC EMS Workgroup and serves as an instructor there. Another friend and colleague, uh, Mr. Wade Miles, a nationally registered paramedic, who's the training manager for our section of pre-hospital and disaster medicine in Emory's uh, Department of Emergency Medicine, is the operations director for Emory EMS, the a founding member and former team lead for the Great EMS Biosafety Transport Team, uh, the operations and training manager for Emory's Office of Critical Event Preparedness and Response, and is also active in the NETEC EMS workgroup and um, uh, is a, a leader in dissemination of education on high-consequence infectious disease, patient transport, and management through NETEC. And with that, we're going to move to the Region 4 Special Pathogens Report. I'm Gavin Harris with the Region 4 CITREP. First, to Nigeria, where one of the largest Lassa fever outbreaks recorded continues to spread. In the past week, there were 10 new confirmed cases reported, bringing the cumulative confirmed total for the year to 929, with the case fatality rate holding steady at 17.0%. The national transmission risk in Nigeria continues to remain very high, and healthcare workers in Region 4 are reminded to remain vigilant. Next, to the simultaneous Marburg virus disease outbreaks in Equatorial Guinea and Tanzania. On Monday, May 16th, Equatorial Guinea declared an end to the outbreak in that country, which ultimately resulted in 17 laboratory-confirmed cases, 12 deaths, and 23 probable cases, all fatal. Amongst the confirmed cases, this equates to a case fatality rate of between 70 and 80 percent. The last confirmed case was reported on April 20th, and after 42 days, twice the incubation period of the virus without a new case, the outbreak was declared over. In Tanzania, which declared an outbreak on March 21st, there have also been no new cases since April 16th, and the country is in the midst of its 42-day countdown. Thus far, there have been nine confirmed and six deaths, a case fatality rate of 66.7%. Again, this is the first time there have been outbreaks of Marburg virus disease in both countries, and there has been no evidence to suggest the outbreaks are linked. Domestically, in the past month, there have been several suspect cases of Marburg virus disease that necessitated biocontainment activations of regional emerging special pathogens treatment centers in several regions. However, each case was ultimately determined not to have Marburg virus disease. Next, to the United Kingdom, where on the 16th of May, the UK Health Security Agency reported it had detected influenza A H5 in two poultry workers. Both of these tests were part of routine testing and both workers were asymptomatic. Subsequent testing returned negative. Further investigation revealed that these cases were likely either colonization or environmental contamination. Once again, it is worth noting that the avian flu viruses currently circulating amongst animals worldwide do not transmit easily to and amongst people. H5N1 detections in terrestrial mammals continue to rise throughout the world. Of note, emergency authorization of an H5N1 vaccine has been granted for use in birds, and as of the 16th of May, for use specifically to prevent deaths of critically endangered Californian condors. Lastly, there have been no reports of other suspected or confirmed patients with special pathogens of concern in Region 4 at this time. For more resources, visit us on the web at scdu.emory.edu. I'm Gavin Hatt. Uh, we'll thank uh, Dr. Gavin Harris uh, for that report. And with that, we're going to move to a couple poll questions for the audience. 
So the question is, how confident are you in implementing, identifying, isolate, and inform for Mar Marburg virus disease today? And the second question is, how confident are you in your agency's ability to implement, identify, isolate, and inform for Marburg virus disease today? And we will give you a little bit of time to answer those questions. I appreciate your responses. It looks like we have slowed down on our responses, so maybe let's uh, let's end the poll at this point. And of course, we'll come back to it at the end of our presentation. And with that, I believe we're going to take the opportunity to change control of the presentation to my slide deck. Here we go. So everyone else had the opportunity to uh, be introduced. I uh, realized I failed to introduce myself. So I'm Alex Isakov. I'm an emergency medicine EMS physician here at Emory University uh, and uh, the medical director for Emory uh, Grady EMS Biosafety Transport Program. I'm also the EMS lead for the National Emerging Special Pathogens uh, Training and Education Center, and um, we're going to get our work started here today. So the didactics for today are going to be to describe uh, current high-consequence infectious disease threats. Uh, our colleague, Dr. Gavin Harris, has done that in large part for us already. Uh, we're going to review use of Identify, Isolate, and Inform for Marburg virus disease. Um, the uh, presentation is going to describe uh, procedures uh, that can be implemented for the safety of EMS responders. Um, that might encounter a patient infected with a high-consequence infectious disease, and also uh, to understand the importance of a regional transportation concept of operations. So first, just to underscore some of what we heard Dr. Harris describe in the Region 4 Situation Report, I think it's important for the EMS community to be aware of these two um, countries that have uh, currently an outbreak of Marburg virus disease um, that are ongoing. And, uh, and recognize that uh, while Marburg virus disease and Ebola virus disease um, are caused by different viruses, the Ebola virus and the, and the, and the virus that causes Marburg virus disease, um, there's a, a, a tremendous amount of similarities in terms of uh, incubation periods, how the patients present, um, and uh, what infection prevention measures are necessary to keep EMS responders safe. And um, that will be a good part of what we're discussing um, in our presentation today. Uh, I think everyone on this call has been familiar with the outbreak of MPOX uh, in the United States and globally. Um, that is very quiet now, as this graph describes. But I think as an EMS community, it will be important for us to be on the lookout for suspicious rashes, especially among groups that would be at higher risk for exposure to MPOX. Um, CDC has uh, issued some warning about the possibility that we'll see a resurgence of MPOX cases in the U.S. Um, and uh, this is in part because of the population that is at greatest risk for exposure to MPOX, 
approximately 25% of that population is taking advantage of available uh, vaccine. And so that means there's still a large proportion of at-risk community that's not vaccinated could result in a resurgence of MPOX cases in the US. And so um, I would just refer this audience to other um, material that has been produced for the EMS community on recognition of MPOX cases and how to protect yourself. Some have heard perhaps of uh, Candida auris as a, another um, uh, risk for uh, exposure to a serious pathogen. Um, CDC has uh, raised awareness uh, that uh, there's a multi-drug resistant form of this fungus uh, that is um, being increasingly identified in the healthcare community. I think it's important uh, for um, this audience to know that whatever you might hear about uh, Candida auris, um, that uh, how to protect yourself from it is as uh, straightforward as understanding the implementation of standard plus contact precautions. Um, and of course, part of standard precautions is good hand hygiene and alcohol-based hand sanitizers um, work well, um, especially if your uh, hands are not visibly soiled. Also, it's a good opportunity to remind everyone that, um, that viruses, bacteria, and funguses um, can be killed with disinfecting agents and the EPA has uh, guidelines uh, and lists of, of uh, disinfecting agents that are effective against um, uh, Candida auris. And so you can uh, Google uh, EPA uh, registered disinfectants. You can look for list P in disinfecting um, your durable medical equipment or an ambulance um, with an agent on that uh, list. Um, for the appropriate, uh, with the appropriate contact time and also ensuring that the product you're using isn't um, expired is, is a good way to stay safe. And as uh, Dr. Harris had noted in his update, um, we are seeing an uh, unprecedented uh, rise uh, of a bird flu, H5N1, um, which is a, has an ancestor in uh, an Asian H5N1 from 1997. This is a very different virus that's circulating currently in the bird community. Some uh, mammals have become infected, especially those that uh, prey on uh, birds uh, and sick birds. There have been cases of humans that have contracted even the current strain of, um, of this avian influenza, um, but very few. Um, and there is no reported human-to-human -human transmission of this particular strain of, of avian influenza, but it's something that, uh, that we need to keep an eye on, and you can get uh, recurrent updates on it if you uh, subscribe to the Region 4 um, BioThreats update. With that, I'm going to invite my colleague and friend, Dr. Lakshmi Kumar, to present a, a case which is actually adapted from a real-world case um, that, to kick things off for us today. Thank you so much, Alex. Uh, so the case we wanted to present today was actually a case that um, we saw within our community and kind of adapted to suit this uh, talk. Uh, but essentially, um, 911 was, was called uh, from a, a hotel on campus for a patient that was altered and that was found in their room. Um, so when we got there, uh, the hotel guest was in his room and he was confused. He was not able to give us any history. And we had to do a little bit of digging around in the room to kind of find out what was going on. Uh, when EMS personnel walked into the room, they 
looked inside the bathroom, they found out that he had been vomiting, he had had bloody diarrhea, uh, and the patient was clammy, hot, um, and uh, looked unwell. Uh, they looked through his stuff and they did find a passport. So he was uh, visiting and he was in the hotel um, and he was in this case visiting from Tanzania um, and they did some vital signs right? And he was febrile. Um, his heart rate was around 140, so tachycardic, um, hypotensive with the asystolic blood pressure of 70 over a palp. And his respiratory rate was elevated at around 28. Uh, SATs were fine though at 98% of room air. Uh, so I guess the questions that come across uh, come to us at that point is you found this person who is not able to give you any history, who is confused and who has all these symptoms and is clearly uh, someone who is coming in from out of town. Um, and the questions that we should pose to ourselves is, what are we going to do with this patient next? How are we resuscitating this, resuscitating this patient? And are we transporting? Where are we transporting? How are we transporting? Um, and I guess I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Carr to kind of go through some of the uh, didactic portion for this before we come back to the case. Thanks, Dr. Kumar. All right. I believe it's my turn. Can you hear me okay? Loud and clear, Mike. Great. Um, thanks, everyone. Uh, uh, it's uh, my opportunity now to talk about uh, identify, isolate, and inform um, as it relates to Marburg virus disease. And, uh, and then we're going to talk about a hierarchy of controls that um, is, is a series of safeguards uh, that would potentially prevent a transmission or an exposure if you're the, the EMS worker caring for this patient. So uh, identify, isolate, and, and inform is a standardized approach uh, that is used by the CDC, by NITEC, uh, and um, this is a, a method for us to, uh, to go based on a specific disease state or um, uh, high infectious, uh, con high consequence infectious disease um, to um, uh, first identify using a series of questions and then uh, separate ourselves from that, uh, from that patient uh, to prevent exposure and then inform the appropriate authorities. So uh, this, this has come up in, in various articles uh, uh, and peer-reviewed journals as used as an example and has, has kind of become the standard uh, in, in uh, presenting this material. Uh, so next slide, please. First, identify. Uh, think about the likelihood of the disease. And now this is very important, right? When we're talking about Marburg virus disease, which by the way, this is a great case because this, this could happen to any of us, right? Um, this is where travel and exposure history are gonna be the key indicators of how we identify the, the likelihood or rather the risk of this patient actually having Marburg virus disease. And that travel history and exposure history plus or in addition to signs and symptoms is how we're going to uh, raise our suspicion. Um, next slide. And th those questions can be initiated as early as EMD. So if it's a 911 call going through dispatch um, or uh, in at, you know, as a patient checks into the emergency department in anywhere in the realm of acute care medicine where we're doing an initial assessment, we can ask these questions. So Marburg virus disease, how are we, how are we gonna identify it? Uh, well, we can start with signs and symptoms. The patient presents with or calls 911 for, um, you know, fever, chills, headache, myalgias. 
um, potentially a rash, you know, macular papular rash that um, as far as I'm concerned, every condition with a rash has that word before it, macular papular, right? So how are we going to differentiate that from other um, illnesses? Diarrhea, nausea, vomiting, abdominal pain. Can you think of any other illnesses or viral infections that uh, we may see on a daily basis in our practice that have very similar signs and symptoms? I hope the answer is yes for you. Uh, as this virus progresses in, in its disease state, we're going to get more severe symptoms. So internal and external bleeding, mental status changes, multi-system organ failure, and shock. And a lot of this comes from a phenomenon called tissue tropism, where viruses actually prefer to attack and invade um, certain types of, of tissue. So, uh, you know, the common cold, for example, might focus and attack uh, cells in the, in the posterior um, pharynx, the nasopharynx, and then progress down to infect, you know, goblet cells of our, of our lungs. Um, viral hemorrhagic fever, those viruses uh, actually prefer um, the, the, the cells in our uh, vascular system. So the, the endothelium of our vascular system. So at, as, as those cells are attacked, the integrity of the uh, vessels, um, uh, it worsens. And then all of a sudden you might get some leakage of, of blood and cause bleeding and, and multi, multi-system organ failure. Um, so, you know, travel to, uh, so, so the signs and symptoms plus travel to a country with ongoing Marburg virus disease should raise a flag, um, to proceed into the isolate, um, you, you know, uh, component of this mnemonic. And first, before I advance, I just want to say, um, travel history is important. Uh, but it's important to ask the right questions because if somebody has these signs and symptoms and they're from Tanzania, for example, but they didn't recently travel to Tanzania, well, that's a big difference. Somebody can be from Tanzania and, you know, have, they could have grown up in, in Houston, Texas, and now they live in Atlanta, Georgia, right? Um, but they haven't been to Tanzania in the last, you know, 20 years. So um, it's important to clarify that, especially when you're handing off a patient to uh, another medical professional. Next slide. So uh, transmission, um, in order to identify how we're going to isolate ourselves and isolate other patients and healthcare professionals from this patient of concern or this patient under investigation, a PUI, we have to know how Marburg virus disease uh, uh, transmission occurs. Uh, so it is primarily exposure of mucous membranes or broken skin of infectious bodily fluids. Um, this can happen in, in, in patients that are actively symptomatic, um, generally in close, uh, close family settings or close family and friends. This is the, this is where we see it being spread. Um, and it, and it can happen that, that, uh, that spread can happen within the incubation period of, of two to 21 days. Uh, more specifically, if you are exposed to someone via their mucous membranes, broken skin or infectious bodily fluids, um, you may not manifest symptoms or, uh, or uh, you know, develop symptoms for this virus for two to 21 days. That's an enormous time span to keep somebody potentially isolated, right? Um, so that's why we, we have to be really diligent with our, um, our, our identify component uh, before proceeding to identify patients that we need to, um, to isolate. Currently, CDC guidelines would recommend infection con control um, called standard plus contact plus droplet 
plus eye protection. So this is standard precautions or body fluid isolation procedures that we do on every single uh, patient. This includes hand washing. This includes, um, uh, you know, um, uh, isolating yourself uh, from other patients who are who are covered in a bodily fluid of some kind. So standard precautions that we do in in every uh, day practice plus transmission-based precautions like contact, droplet, and eye protection. Based on how this virus spreads, we're gonna choose to add additional layers of protection in our safety equipment, our PPE, um, to prevent the spread of Marburg. So of note, airborne, uh, we would add airborne protection if we're, if we're performing an aerosol generating procedure. You could probably think of an aerosol generating procedure that we do in our daily practice. Um, if you're one who is uh, intubating, you know, intubation is uh, is an aerosol generating procedure. Suctioning, uh, bronchoscopy, these are all things that would potentially ge uh, generate some um, aerosolized particles. An important thing to know with Marburg virus disease uh, is that asymptomatic patients are not contagious. Um, so. Uh, you, you know, think of other viruses where there, there may be asymptomatic shed or spread or presymptomatic spread. One you're familiar with potentially COVID-19. Um, influenza virus, you can, you can uh, spread that 24 hours before you develop symptoms. Um, this is one where we do not see spread uh, unless you are uh, symptomatic. So uh, we rely on those symptoms to spread the virus. And of note, I wanted to point out that picture on the right side is actually a picture of Marburg virus disease. Um, and interestingly, this is the same family uh, viruses as Ebola virus. It's in the, the filoviridae or filament virus. So um, this brings to mind, I have to say it, that quote from the movie Outbreak, where Dustin Hoffman very dramatically says, it's a billionth our size and it's beating us, right? So um, that picture always reminds me of that quote. Next slide. Uh, thinking through how to how to protect yourself and isolate with viral hemorrhagic fever, there is a distinction in PPE and how we don it before we are exposing ourselves to a patient. Um, we um, uh, we would consider patients dry or wet based on their symptomology. So, it, with Ebola or Marburg virus disease, as your symptoms progress. Um, you become more symptomatic and therefore you, you're developing diarrhea, vomiting, um, uh, potentially bleeding from orifices. Um, that's considered a wet patient. And therefore you're going to, you're going to take greater precautions um, to protect yourself. Whereas um, you may be um, exposing yourself to a patient or transporting a patient, I should say, that um, is not yet symptomatic to the point that they are wet. Um, this may uh, this may impact what PPE you're using. So for a dry patient or an asymptomatic patient um, who's not having diarrhea and you know bleeding from orifices, uh, we would use a fluid resistant gown or coverall, um, a full face shield, face mask, and then double gloves with extended cuffs. Um, if you are transporting a patient uh, that that may develop these symptoms uh, potentially in the in the duration of the transport, or they're already actively symptomatic with uh, wet, with wet symptoms like diarrhea, vomiting, and bleeding, we're going to use an impenetrable gown or coverall, full face shield, N95 or PAPR. Uh, generally, PAPR is the setup that we that we use in our practice, and then double gloves with extended cuffs, boot covers, and aprons. So it's much more extensive and and, and recommendation. Um, Alex, I see you came uh, off uh, your camera. Are you you want to add something? No, just one thing. Thanks, Mike. Um, I just want to make sure that uh, our listeners know that uh, 
these two different type of PPE ensembles used just the way you described, you know, with different use cases um, are for when someone's suspected to have Marburg virus disease. When someone is confirmed to have Marburg virus disease, whatever their condition, stable or unstable, dry or wet, um, we're using the, uh, the more complete um, and more protective PPE ensemble described on the right. Absolutely. Yeah, you're right. Sorry. Sorry if I didn't make that clear. All right, next slide. Okay, and, and finally, inform. So um, we've identified a patient of concern based on their symptoms, their exposure history. We've isolated them, uh, you know, using, uh, and I'll, you know, foreshadowing, using some environmental controls, and, um, and uh, we've donned our appropriate PPE based on uh, the, you know, the suspected or confirmed nature of the, the illness. Um, now, who are we going to tell about this, right? Who are we going to inform? Well, uh, you know, naturally, we'd want to make sure that local and state public health authorities are notified because there are protocols in place uh, for assisting with the isolation and preventing exposure to this patient. Um, notifying your supervisor, supervisory personnel immediately. And, and, and that may even precede local and, and public health authorities or be, be uh, synchronous such that, um, you know, you call your supervisor and say, let's get public health involved now, right? Um, so there should be a protocol that's clearly delineated in your agency for this. And finally, uh, importantly, receiving facility. Right, where is this patient going? Are they a, a regional center of excellence for um, a, um, a confirmed, suspected, confirmed, or positive patient, um, or is this going to a local hospital um, that is not uh, in any way prepared <laughs> for this type of patient? Um, you know, wherever the, where based in your system, wherever these patients are going, it's important that the receiving facility is made fully aware in advance of your arrival, so that the patient's uh, frankly not sitting on the ambulance bay for hours, and that unfortunately has happened. Um, next slide. Um, so medical countermeasures with Marburg, it's worth mentioning, there is a vaccine in early, early trials. Um, there was a publication in Lancet in January of this year um, that reported the phase one uh, data of the, the vaccine trial uh, showing promising results, but we can't say that for sure until uh, we've progressed through the phases. Um, right now, treatment is primarily supportive, um, and this is where we may see a difference in case fatality rate based on resources available to meet the supportive therapy requirements. So fluid and electrolytes, blood pressure, oxygenation, um, you know, co-infections, managing other infections is going to be a big part of that. There are some experimental uh, medications that are, that are typically given for um, are, or recommended or, or available for uh, patients that are severely symptomatic, like monoclonal antibodies and antivirals, but there's not, there's not any data on this. Next slide. Um, it, you know, it's worth following up the, uh, the, with the, the identify, isolate, and inform with the hierarchy of controls because they, they go together hand in hand. Now, when we talk about hierarchy of controls, we're talking specifically about environmental controls, uh, administrative policies, work practices, and uh, safety equipment. And those are the four main uh, controls that we have uh, control over um, to prevent the spread of infection. Next slide. So environment, where's our environment? Well, you know, the majority of the people on this call, I think, work in acute care medicine and, and in specifically in EMS. So we may have uh, the opportunity to change our environment 
uh, based on where we work. So in in an ambulance, as an example, we're going to separate our driver compartment from the patient compartment, depending on the type of ambulance that uh, you use, whether it's type one, two, three, uh, or, uh, you know, uh, you know, whatever type of vehicle there is that you're transporting the patient. Sometimes there, we need to separate that compartment with a, you know, a piece of plywood, uh, with a piece of cardboard, and then, you know, drape over it, um, as you see in this photo. Um, that's how we would don our ambulance to transport one of these patients with high consequence infectious disease. Um, adjust air handling to introduce fresh air into both compartments. Um, so instead of recirculating air, we want fresh air vented in from the outside with the exhaust fan on high in that patient compartment. Uh, and then, you know, consider draping the interior of the ambulance to protect these environmental services, uh, especially for uh, suspected or confirmed wet cases. Next slide. Work practices, uh, we, would, we would consider work practices, how are you modifying the transport of that patient? Well, for this patient, um, you know, uh, who's, who's suspected or confirmed positive, especially if they're wet, we were, we're gonna apply a surgical mask to the patient. We're gonna consider applying um, a suit to the patient. Well, uh, an, an impervious suit. Uh, or a sheet. So as you see in this patient, they're kind of, you know, wrapped up like a, a burrito in the same uh, impervious material that we use to drape the inside of our, our ambulance. Um, consider undergarments to collect diarrhea. You know, sometimes you have to get creative. Where's this patient coming from? If it's a small local hospital and you're transporting this patient to a regional center of excellence, as an example, um, you may have to get creative and, and ask them uh, for, let's say it sounds morbid, but think of, you know, using a body bag, for example. Every hospital is going to have one of those, and it is a way to isolate uh, the patient inside and prevent the spill of uh, and collection of um, or overflow of diarrhea. Um, Leak-proof containers and and pre-treating your patient for nausea, vomiting, and, and diarrhea so that they're not you know vomiting all over your ambulance on the way to the, the hospital. Um, next slide. What other work practices? Well, with personnel, you can avoid un, un, unprotected exposures. Um, you know, keep people uh, six feet, uh, at least six feet away from the, the person under investigation, a limit exposure to the minimum number of, of uh, personnel. So if they're, if, the, we, if we don't need two people in the back of the ambulance treating the patient, don't put two people in the back of the ambulance. If the patient's completely stable um, and it's a, um, you know, a, a high risk, a suspected case, uh, and then maybe only one person is in the back of the ambulance with that patient. Um, driver, for example, should not make patient contact. Uh, and there should be uh, backups and contingencies in place if for some reason there is a provider down or um, if, uh, if the patient destabilized and we needed more hands to treat the patient, we would have backups in place for that. But up front, we wouldn't expose additional healthcare workers to that patient. Next slide. Uh, and and uh, work practices in terms of clinical care, you know, thinking of your uh, PCGs, your uh, patient care guidelines or clinical care guidelines, um, these, these are modifiable, right? We can limit the use of sharps in the care of this patient. We can limit aerosol generating procedures. We can do this stuff in uh, a negative pressure room at the sending hospital before getting that patient in the back of the ambulance. So taking those, um, those restrictions into play uh, and really limiting uh, limiting our, our our treatment uh, with with potential hazards. Uh, this is another barrier in that hierarchy of controls. Next. 
And finally, you know, what are we going to do with our patient after we deliver them to the receiving facility? Um, you know, if we are transporting a patient with suspected or confirmed viral hemorrhagic fever, there's going to be waste associated with that. Think of all the drapes inside of the ambulance. Think of the, the um, you know, the materials that you use to wrap the patient up during your transport. These are all things that uh, are now all of a sudden category A waste. And this type of waste is highly regulated, by the way. Um, so the the, the, this has to be pre-arranged such that the receiving facility um, is uh, willing, able, and capable of, of uh, taking care of category A waste. And if they're not, there needs to be a protocol in place. You know, it used to be that once that ambulance reside, uh, arrived at that receiving facility, um, they were stuck there. They couldn't go. Now with category A waste, I think there's allowed um, one more stop to get to an area where the waste can be disposed of, but still that's it. That's all you got. So that needs to be uh, prearranged before you even consider transporting a patient. Um, next slide. And finally, post-mission medical surveillance. Um, you, you know, this is a way uh, following, uh, following a transport of a patient with suspected or confirmed uh, uh, viral hemorrhagic fever, we are going to have to observe crews for the signs and symptoms of this disease until uh, confirmation testing is uh, available for the patient. Uh, or the incubation period has lapsed, whichever comes first. So that's going to be very highly coordinated with public health entities. Um, and I believe that's it. Next slide. Let's hear the duration of the case, Dr. Kumar. Mike, before, before Dr. Kumar goes uh, into review of the case, there was a question that came through that maybe this is a good time to address because uh, we were talking about hierarchy of controls. And um, one of our listeners was asking, you know, what's the procedure around exhausting from the patient compartment as it relates to, you know, protection of the public? Sure, absolutely. Do you want to take that one or you want me to? Uh, yeah, well. Um, I, I can tell you that uh, per CDC guidelines, um, exhausting the patient compartment to keep the risk of suspended droplet nuclei in the back of the ambulance down or low is similar to, you know, what's applied in an airborne isolation room in a hospital, right, where uh, you have six to 12 air exchanges per hour in the hospital. It may be surprising uh, for people on the call to hear that, you know, the exhaust from those airborne isolation rooms also goes into the atmosphere. There's no requirement for it to be HEPA filtered, um, which means that, you know, through dilution and UV light, um, you know, those pathogens don't uh, don't survive. And so, um, you know, we rely a lot on the epidemiology of disease transmission. Uh, there's been no reported history of someone contracting an illness for uh, from a patient that was in an ambulance uh, because they were a bystander on the sidewalk as that ambulance passed. So the risk of transmission, especially of a viral hemorrhagic fever, um, through that means would be uh, very, very, very low or or nil. Um, the question might be as appropriate for a um, disease that's more likely transmitted by the airborne route. Uh, like a respiratory illness, but in the same manner, if the ambulance is just operating as normal, driving through the streets of the city um, and exhausting to the air, um, the, the risk of someone outside that ambulance contracting the illness that the patient has in the ambulance is, is negligible. So that that's the answer right. to the question. Yeah. 
Mike, uh, uh, thanks for that presentation on hierarchy controls and identifies latent forum. And um, Dr. Kumar, let's go back to the case. Sure. Thanks, Alex. Um, so this this case, like going back to it, uh, we found this patient confused and not able to answer any of our questions and clearly had bloody diarrhea and a history of travel. Um, and vital signs, they, I mean, would qualify under something needs to be done soon, um, right? So the question comes back to what are you going to do next? And do you attempt to resuscitate? And do you transport? And where do you transport the patient to? Um, so... Alex, was there a next slide with this? Well, so the next slide let's, actually is the yeah. resolution of the case. But so let's maybe... talk about this a little bit. So, I mean, I think as Mike was saying, the hierarchy of controls is very important, right? I mean, um, when we approach anything like this, I think the most important things for any EMS agency is one, situational awareness. Uh, we need to know what is happening around not just our response zone, but what is happening across the country. I mean, with globalization, there are so many people that are traveling. And I mean, especially in Atlanta and many of the major cities, we sit in this hub of travel where there's people coming through the airports. And we need to know that uh, this is what is going on because that travel history is not going to make sense to us unless we have situational awareness. Um, we do want to get a sufficient travel history and what kind of PPE stands that we take when we approach a patient like this is based on that situational awareness, based on their symptoms, right? And based on our suspicion for spread. Is this going to be a contact for precautions? Is it going to be isolation based on droplets? Um, or airborne just based on the symptomatology that the patient is exhibiting. Uh, so those things are really important. And I do wanna take a moment to say that it's not just what we see when we walk into the room or come in contact with a patient. A lot of this happens at dispatch as well. So if we know something is going on in the world that we have a high concern for, that is uh, high morbidity, high mortality and high risk, maybe we wanna get that travel history even before we approach the patient because a lot of times EMS does not have the benefit uh, of hindsight, right? They don't know what is going on when they walk into a room, they have zero information. Um, so in this case, uh, thankfully, um, the uh, providers did um, uh, have complete PPE on. So they did have um, a face shield and a 95 uh, gowns and a glove before they entered the room. And they found all this information that uh, about his travel history. Um, and when we talk about what we are going to ne do next and how we resuscitate, the hierarchy of controls is really, really important. And we need to realize that donning the appropriate PPE is just the tip of the iceberg, right? That's, that's just one small point in the hierarchy of controls. We need to think about the environmental factors. We need to think about limiting the exposure of that patient to our personnel. So send in as few people as possible, or if we are able to evaluate that patient from the door and keep our distance, then we do that before we walk in so that we don the appropriate PPE. Uh, so we did go in, we did package the patient. We were able to actually just given the vital signs, place an IV, right? Given, give him fluids to try and stabilize him. Um, and the next step becomes, we are transporting. Where are we transporting? Like Mike said, are we transporting to a hospital that is capable of taking care of a patient like this? How are we approaching that um, ER or that unit that we are 
sending the patient to? Is there a way that we don't have to take that patient through the hospital? Is there a separate entrance that we can get the patient into? Um, and in our ER, we do have an entrance that directly goes into, uh, from the ambulance bay into a um, um, isolation room. Um, so we were able to get that patient in there and we were able to give the hospital a heads up, which is also equally important because they can take the necessary precautions before we get there um, so that we don't sit outside and wait for them to uh, don their PPE and wait for hours for them trying to figure it out on the back end. Um, and I do want to say that post-mission surveillance is really, really important, especially with the MS personnel. Uh, we do need to follow up with them. I think this becomes a little easier in the hospital, but especially within the EMS community, when there are multiple responding agencies involved, uh, when there's a first responder and a transporting agency, we need to try and make sure that um, we follow that up to make sure there is enough uh, surveillance um, and we touch all the people that were in contact with this patient. Oh, thanks. Thanks, Lakshmi. I think I think you really described the, the case and the considerations well. You know, as, as EMS responders in any community, I think it's important for us to be able to identify um, the patient because of travel history, signs and symptoms. It's important for us to be able to protect ourselves as responders and others from exposure to that patient's potentially infectious bodily fluids. And then it's important for us to implement that inform um, uh, component to let other responders know that because of the travel history and the signs and symptoms, there's suspicion that the patient may have a high consequence infectious disease like Marburg virus disease. And um, I think this is another good time to remind people that your state health department may very well have a, um, a hotline or toll-free number in Georgia, for example, if you dial 1-866-PUB-HEALTH, which we would recommend if you were... Um, interacting with a patient where you suspect they had a high consequence infectious disease, that would be one of the groups that you would want to inform almost immediately. They will have an epidemiologist to help sort through um, the risk that patient may actually have the disease based on travel and signs and symptoms. And they may also have um, uh, or would have resources to identify an agency that has a special capability, policies, procedures, education, and training equipment to transport this patient. And others, and other of the states in our region um, uh, likely have analogous systems. The other point that you made here, which is important, is that this patient was hypotensive and tachycardic. Um, and so the question is, do you, do you attempt to resuscitate them um, as, a, as an EMS responder? And we would say, yes. Um, but you have to do it, of course, in a way uh, where you're putting on the appropriate PPE and preventing exposure to infectious bodily fluids. And the reason um, that we think that that's important to have the ability to provide a life-saving intervention in part is uh, comes out through the resolution of, of this case, right, Lakshmi? Yeah. And, and in all honesty, Alex, I just want to emphasize that a lot of these discussions are probably best had before we come into contact with a patient like this. Uh, I think there has to be um, good medical direction involved uh, to discuss uh, cases like this where and have a plan of action, right? We, we, don't, we don't want to try and figure it out after we come into contact with the patient, whether we're going to resuscitate or not. These are things that need to be discussed uh, 
beforehand what kind of PPE you're going to use. And they, there needs to be training. So if you do realize that there is uh, you know, a disease that you um, are seeing more of, or there is a high risk of, it is important that you train your personnel on what to expect so that they have heightened awareness, even if it is just-in-time training, um, just so that they know what they're doing and don't really have a huge question wondering if they need to resuscitate or not. Um, in this case, they did end up placing an IV, giving him fluids, blood pressure did improve. And by the time he came into the ER, his vital signs were more stable and uh, he was transitioned safely to the ER personnel and who also had appropriate PPE on. And after further testing, we found out that he was actually positive for malaria. Um, so we're glad that it was a good outcome and we were able to diagnose, uh, but it just goes back to Alex's point about um, we do need to resuscitate, just need to have these protocols and policies and guidelines decided up front with good medical direction involvement. Oh, thanks very much, uh, Lakshmi. Uh, with that, I'm going to uh, advance to um, this slide because we we'd been making some reference to teams that may have a capability to transport a patient infected with a high consequence infectious disease like Marburg virus disease, and um, the audience may uh, may be interested in the fact that. Uh, regional transportation plans or a concept of operations for those regional plans actually were first published in 2014, sorry, 2017, um, after the uh, West African outbreak of Ebola virus disease that lasted from 2014 through 2016. Um, I understand uh, that not only in Region 4, but in the other regions, now that we're post-COVID-19 pandemic, um, those regional transportation plans are being reviewed and refreshed and updated, and um, probably in the next several months, uh, we'll see those regional transportation plans um, refreshed with updated information. So uh, keep an eye out for that or talk to your uh, state EMS uh, office about uh, status of uh, regional transportation plans. They're important because as, uh, as we know, many states actually maintain readiness uh, among a group of EMS agencies that have the appropriate education and training policies and procedures in place to do this safely. Um, they, in many states, result in an infectious disease transport network. And so if a patient uh, can wait um, and doesn't have an, an urgent need for transportation, then um, uh, they may be able to dispatch a team that's, uh, that's ready to do this uh, and has done exercises um, and drills to, to maintain their readiness. Let me take uh, two minutes to just identify some resources for you all before we go to answering some questions. Um, one is uh, the National Emerging Special Pathogens Training and Education Center, NETEC. Um, this is a group that provides um, uh, resources, uh, readiness assessment tools, education and training, not just for the EMS community, uh, but for frontline facilities, assessment and treatment centers, the laboratorians. And so follow that QR code to uh, NETEC.org. Uh, 
those of us that are participating in the EMS work group at NEATAC are always trying to make sure that there's uh, relevant information available for the EMS community um, uh, for incidents that come up like uh, Marburg virus disease outbreak. Follow this QR code to a blog uh, aimed at the EMS community to remind us of our identify and informed procedures as well as our hierarchy of controls. Follow this QR code if you're curious about the your agency's uh, readiness for interacting or managing, uh, interacting with or managing a patient with a high consequence infectious disease. Um, this is a self-assessment tool that would be appropriate for any EMS agency to partake in, whether you're a fire first responder who doesn't transport patients through the spectrum of EMS agencies, uh, getting to those that hold out a special capability to transport patients. Um, this tool will allow you to do a self-assessment. Um, that self-assessment will be reviewed by uh, subject matter experts at NETEC, and you will be provided resources and um, responses based on how you filled out that survey. It's a way to help your uh, program improve its readiness uh, for encountering a patient with a high consequence infectious disease. There was a question that was put in the um, uh, in our chat uh, before the start of this talk around any resource that might provide guidance to EMS agencies as it relates to implementation of standard and transmission-based precautions for any pathogen. The Aspertracy EMS Infectious Disease Playbook is a great resource for that. There's the QR code that will take you to that. And also know that this uh, resource uh, is uh, in the final stages of uh, being um, updated um, post-pandemic. CEC maintains guidance for 911 call centers and EMS responders uh, for management of patients that are suspected or confirmed to have Ebola virus disease. These would be appropriate also for Marburg virus disease. Uh, note that in Columbia, South Carolina and in Atlanta, Georgia, the uh, Region 4, Regional Special Pathogens Treatment Center at Emory University Hospital and its Serious Communicable Diseases Program is uh, hosting uh, education and training programs for frontline health uh, care providers, as well as for the EMS uh, community. So follow those QR codes to those locations. They'd like for you to um, only enroll in those if you live and work in those states and other courses will be forthcoming. Uh, there's additional... Um, uh, didactic material, not just about uh, viral hemorrhagic fevers, but for other pathogens and operational considerations for management and transport of patients um, with high-consequence infectious disease that can be found on the NETEC website, um, and you can follow that QR code to get to that material. Uh, quickly reviewing Marburg, identify, isolate, and inform is key. Um, the goal is to prevent exposure to potentially infectious bodily fluids, um, it's important to implement standard plus contact uh, plus droplet and or airborne precautions and eye protection. Um, consider hierarchy of controls uh, when you're interacting with patients or having need to transport them. Supervised donning and doffing of PPE uh, is considered critical. And note that if you do end up uh, having the occasion to manage a patient with a high-consequence infectious disease um, that are among Category A agents, you end up uh, creating Category A waste. On the Q&A section, and this is where we're going to get uh, close to the end of our program, we uh, received a number of questions that um, came out uh, before, um, before the talk. And among those, uh, I'm going to ask... Um, uh, I'm going to ask uh, Wade Miles to consider um, one of the questions that we got around one of the biggest what are the biggest challenges for EMS in implementing a hierarchy of controls? 
Yeah, thanks, Dr. Azakov. Um, I think for the EMS community, one of the biggest challenges, and, and it was kind of discussed earlier, is you know keeping up with um, with all the, the pathogens that, you know around the world that we may come into uh, contact with. Um, a lot of people aren't particularly may not be interested in you know keeping up with it, um, but it is important. And and I think that um, you know it's important for medical directors of services to um, you know keep up, keep in contact with public health. And um, you know, just kind of have an idea of what special pathogens uh, may be, uh, you know, lingering in the response areas. Um, I also think you know, um, draping out a truck can be challenging, um, especially if you don't really understand the concept or the or the need to do that. Um, you know, so I, I think those would be the two biggest challenges. No, thanks, Wade. Um, Dr. Kumar. Um... Any quick uh, thoughts on why hierarchy of controls are important in emergency response? Um, I, I do, I mean, well, hierarchy of controls are important after that long talk, if we haven't figured that out yet. But, but I do think we have to um, uh, consider every single hierarchy of control and not just, I think there's that um, assumption that it is just a question of PPE and how we're protecting ourselves. And we don't always consider the environmental um, uh, concepts and how we can prevent uh, and decrease exposure. Uh, and these, these things are almost as important, if not more important than just the PPE portion of it. And that's something to consider. Thanks, Dr. Kumar. Um... Wade, back to you. Um, what are your uh, what's your guidance about uh, discarding waste, especially if you um, are concerned it's Category A waste? Yeah, I think Doctor Doctor Carr, you know, really um, touched on this a bit earlier. Um, category A waste obviously um, needs to be handled, you know, different than you know any other uh, medical waste. And I think ideally, if you can, um, you know, have the receiving facility. Um, dispose of that for you, that, that's ideal. Um, if not, you definitely have to have a, um, you know, medical waste company come out and pick it up from, you know, your, your headquarters or wherever you, you know, have cleaned your vehicle. But ideally having the uh, receiving facility take that waste would be my recommendation. Thanks, Wade. Uh, Mike, maybe a last question to you. Uh, what's the best way to prepare for uh, future pathogens uh, that put, could put our workforce at risk? Yeah, you know, I, I, you know, as I referenced in my talk, I, I think we need to take it a step further than watching movies like Outbreak and Contagion and, um, you know, Hot Zone, the H HBO special, although I love those, they're great. Um, that's, you know, that's not where we should be getting our information paying very close attention to public health guidance. And, um, and, and a lot of this will come from the media, but make sure you're checking your sources um, to see the CDC, World Health Organization, uh, and, and um, reputable sources are reporting this to you. Um, there are experts and their primary role is to get this information out to the public. Um, so keep your finger on that pulse of public health guidance. And, um, and, and I make it, I make a point every, you know, every day when I wake up, I'm scrolling through the CDC's, um, you know, uh, update page. So I don't know if you're into that like me, but I think that's a good place to start. And then you can take it a step further if you're really interested. Yeah, I appreciate that, Mike. And then just another reminder of the value of identify, isolate, and inform and the resources that uh, are available at NETEC, 
uh, also through the Regional Special Pathogens Treatment Center and through the Department of Public Health uh, group, especially those uh, hotlines. If you ever have concern, you've encountered someone that might have a high consequence infectious disease. We're uh, just past top of the hour, but uh, let's post our poll questions one more time. Again, after the session, how confident are you in implementing Identify, Isolate, and Inform for Marburg virus disease? And while you're answering those questions, I uh, really do want to um, acknowledge the uh, good work of the Serious Communicable Diseases Program, Ms. Um, Yasmin Thornton, who's uh, working um, a lot of the mechanics of this behind the scenes and keep you know, this illustrious panel in, in line and in order and on time with everything that uh, we need to get these on. Uh, she does a great job. Also, many thanks to uh, Dr. Gavin Harris. Um, who typically moderates uh, this session, and uh, to uh, Dr. Sharon Carrasco, who's the director of the Region 4 Special Pathogens Treatment Center. Thanks also to all of you for participating in this and for the questions that you submitted. We'll work to try and get some of those questions um, on the website together with this recording. Um, and uh, thanks again for this poll, the poll answers. We're going to move to the next, which is to thank you all uh, for participating. Um, also ask you to take uh, a moment to provide some feedback on this echo session, um, and then you'll get your certificate uh, of attendance, um, which would be good for uh, CME or CEUs as whatever is appropriate. Um, looking at the post-session question, it looks like we've made uh, some improvement in people's confidence regarding implementation of hierarchy of controls and identify isolate inform, and we're certainly grateful for that. Um, don't forget, uh, you can subscribe to these sessions. Um, the next uh, session, actually, that we're that's going to be hosted, is um, a, a review of uh, Candida Oris. Um, so look for that on June 29th. Um, uh, so coming up next month. And with that, uh, I want to thank you all again. Uh, thanks to the panelists, uh, Dr. Carr, Kumar. Uh, friend and colleagues, uh, and Wade Miles, and uh, hope to see you on the next uh, Echo session. Thanks all.